Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. Today in our clinical series, we're going to be covering a new risk that's been associated with omega-3s. A lot of people like to take omega-3 supplements. I think maybe even a quarter of the population in the United States may be taking an omega-3 or fish oil supplement. So what is this new warning about? Yeah, there's something fishy going on with AFib in this country. There's a lot of proposed causes, but uh, one of the risks is association of EPA or omega-3s with uh, atrial fibrillation. And for people who don't know, um, atrial fibrillation, it may feel like a fish is sort of flopping around in your chest, but what is AFib if someone doesn't know? Yeah, so AFib is a... Uh, a rhythm or the start of a beat that is not congruent with the rest of your heart. So you can think of the heart as, well, four chambers, but two main areas. The atrium are on top, and then the ventricles are on the bottom. You have the right side, pumps to your lungs. You have the left side, pumps to your body. And AFib usually comes from a small area in the very top of the right atrium, actually usually in the pulmonic vasculature, like right, uh, technically not even in the atrium. That's where you might have heard of... Uh, you know, someone got their AFib zapped or corrected. Mm. Um, that's just where they find where that uh, abnormal beat is Signal coming from. Signal is coming from. Yep. Yeah. And zap it. Um, but anyway, AFib in general is one of the most common arrhythmias. We've talked about it before on podcasts as it is a risk in at least high risk individuals that are on TRT. Yeah, that was that came out of the, wasn't the primary endpoint, but did come out of the yep. recent New England Journal of Medicine paper. So this was a pharmacovigilance risk assessment committee. Uh, this is something that happens in Europe. I'm sure we do the same thing on a periodic basis here in the United States. Um, and this is part of the European Medicines Agency. And they just met, this was about, what, six weeks ago at the time that we're recording this. Yep. And uh, they met for three days, September 25th through 28th and decided to add a warning label to uh, not just the VASIPA, which is a pure EPA product, but also to omega-3 ethyl ester-containing products. So this would be your generic Lavazza and even very similar, in some cases identical to what you're getting over the counter. Yeah, so immediately after this came out, I, of course, cut out all EPA, DHA, DPA, even all fish. omega-3s, yeah, including fish in my <laughs> diet. But wait, it's an essential fatty acid. How can this be a risk? Yeah, it's, it's a bit counterintuitive because when you look at some of the preclinical data, there's, you know, association between fatty acids uh, like EPA and DHA, and it seems like these are anti-arrhythmic. But then when you look at high-risk populations, they seem to be very pro-arrhythmic. And to complicate things even further, there's a sort of um, observational study that looked at the populations and their actual biomarkers, so not just reported intake of, hey, I eat this much fish or I take this much omega-3, um, but basically just dietary um, assessments. And then they sort of fact check that with, okay, how much is in the adipose? How much is in the serum? How much is in the red blood cell membrane? Mm -hmm. And they found if you slice it between the lowest 20th percentile and the highest 20th percentile, so 80th percentile of omega-3, yep. and they stratified it by DPA, DHA, and EPA, all three showed a protective effect with DHA being um, the most potent, you know, twice as effective, if we'll call it that, uh, in terms of EPA or associated with 
a 13% reduced incidence of AFib. So that's confusing. That's the opposite of what they said. So one, the, this agency tells me that omegas cause AFib, and then this other study says they don't cause AFib. Uh, perhaps the dose or the content of omegas in their diet was different between those The two dose groups. makes the poison. Mm -hmm. and that is one of my favorite sayings. Uh, and that does turn out to be the case. It's interesting because these were kind of stacked closely together. Uh, basically, this paper was not trying to say that omega-3 supplements were not risky. It was just reinforcing the dietary guidelines saying, hey, it's probably a good idea for people to have. I think the recommendation is three, two or three meals of fish per week. And basically saying, hey, yes, with that level of omega-3 intake, looks like it would correlate with a reduced mm -hmm. incidence of this AFib. And the average daily intake in these populations is around a half a gram, just under. So about 430 milligrams per day. Yeah. And uh, in addition to that, consider the average health or the average phenotype of someone with a bottom 20th percentile omega-3 content. Um, they probably don't have a very healthy diet otherwise. So they're, yeah. they're going to be, again, it's, this is a correlation with low uh, omega content, omega-3 content and AFib risk. Yeah. It's like the, the healthy user bias or the healthy individual bias where people that tend to have a higher omega-3 index are probably doing other positive things for mm -hmm. their health. And I believe some disease states will also deplete omega-3 in the body. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, as we'll talk about, it kind of does line up at least directionally somewhat with some of the other data that's out there. Um, there were really four big randomized control trials that I think led to this. So you had number one, the OMINI trial showed an increased risk of AFib 7.2% versus 4%. Uh, this was 759 patients, and this was their risk of AFib. So that was, I believe, it's like a 1.8 something hazard ratio is what spun out of there. Mm -hmm. Then you had the STRENGTH trial, also showing increased risk of AFib, 2.2% versus 1.3% over 13,000 patients. Then yep. you had REDUCE IT. Um, this is interesting because this is the one that showed the strongest protective effect. I think the reduced incidence of MACE, major adverse cardiovascular events, was in the range of 25% with this one. Yep. And AFib incidence was increased 3.1% versus 2.1%. And these are absolute risks. So this is relatively small absolute risk, but a pretty substantial relative, relative risk. risk. Yeah. So depending on if you're pro-omega or anti-omega, you say it's a 1% absolute risk or a 80%, yeah. Or if you're yeah. talking about the omini, it could be as high as an 80% relative yeah. risk increase. Or, or that if you're anti-omega, of course, we're here for a balanced approach to health. Um, so if you think about it, you're, you're thinking about the dose and you're also keeping into context what the indication of the omegas are. So I guess our job is not to sit here and say, oh, when we put uh, omegas on the overrated supplement podcast. If people remember, we did overrated supplements and, you know, uh, partly to click to get views, but also partly because with the many benefits of omegas, mega dosing omegas is overrated for general cardiovascular health and uh, AFib risk is part of that. Yeah. Even in these four trials, the fourth being the vital, which did have a hazard ratio of 1.09. So it was supposedly not statistically significant. This was the lowest dosed omega-3 trial. Um, so it was considered a neutral finding. I don't believe it also, I don't believe it showed any improvements in 
adverse cardiovascular events either. So the trials are mixed. So if if you do have a cardiologist that says, hey, you should be on Vasipa, they're probably thinking to themselves, this person's going to like potentially walk out the door and have a heart attack on mm-hmm. me. We want to put everything we can in their corner to hedge against that happening. That's probably a good choice. If you are taking six or seven grams of omega-3s just because you heard your favorite influencer is doing that or mm-hmm. some company told you you should be doing that, then that probably needs to be evaluated in you know context of what is your risk for AFib. Do you have any other health conditions that could, this is, could sort of be the catalyst to flip you over into a, a atrial arrhythmia? So as a functional medicine doctor, I should probably stop telling all of my patients on Eliquis and aspirin or Eliquis and Plavix to stop all of that and start six grams at omega okay. because it's a blood thinner. Because my surgeon told me to stop all omegas and blood thinners before my surgery last week. Yeah. And that's just per protocol. I, I see that a lot. So on the like, stop this before your procedure, um, it will say, you know, stop X, you know, your uh, blood thinners, your aspirin, don't take ibuprofen, mm-hmm. St. John's Ward, all these different things. And it'll add omega-3s or fish oil into that. But there's been randomized trials with really hefty doses of combination. So that's the key there. It's not just four grams of EPA, but like a combination of EPA and DHA in the four gram range. And then they take those patients to open heart surgery and they don't see an increased bleeding risk. So it's just more time efficient for the surgeon to tell everyone, hey, stop your fish oil, than to Mm -hmm. say, okay, well, how much EPA are you taking? How much DHA are you taking? Surgeons don't really get paid Mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah, the other way to look at it is it's not as strong as an anticoagulant or an antiplatelet as prescribed anticoagulants and antiplatelets. I did stop my aspirin before my surgery. Good so, choice. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we're rabbit trailing a bit here. We can move on. Yeah. And then another observational studies and looking at some different countries. Uh, basically, the summary is it needs more research. Um, one showed an increased risk of AFib with more. This is just dietary consumption of fish that was in mm-hmm. younger adults. Uh, one showed a decreased risk in older adults. And then there was another study that showed no change in risk of AFib, regardless of the dietary fish consumption. So I wouldn't worry at all about like how much fish you're eating and whether that's going to affect your AFib risk. Uh, there's much larger basic principles of diet that I think people should focus on first. And then really just kind of evaluating what you're doing from a supplement standpoint. And we'll kind of talk about what, um, what some of the results are looking at the primary reason people are prescribed omega-3s, which is for reducing the risk of a heart attack, stroke, those sorts of things. So this is a chart that's showing us the reduction in uh, plaque progression. So you have a group here. It was sort of the summary, like the average. Then you have Mm -hmm. people taking no EPA, low EPA, and high EPA. And uh, interestingly, in the high EPA group, they included EPA only. Mm -hmm. And then also a combination, basically four grams of ethyl esters as well, Mm -hmm. lumped into that category. Yeah, pretty interesting. Um, The difference between the omega-3 ethyl esters, which is usually about half DHA, half EPA. Is that one's generic and affordable, right? Yeah. Um, It's been compared to icosapent ethyl, which is basically just EPA ethyl ester, which is pure EPA. And I suppose if you had a patient that has um, like familial hypertriglyceridemia or uh, extremely high triglycerides, it's also cardiovascular risk, then um, that could make sense, especially if they're not having to take 
something like niacin or a fibrate in lieu of that. Um, but yeah, compared to it for general health optimization purposes, we actually prefer the mixed omega ethyl esters or the generic lulazo. Yeah. And again, it's probably for the general healthy person, not a huge, I mean, I don't even know if you could detect that risk, even in a study, large study over several years, yep. but to hedge on the side of caution, that's the approach that we tend to take. So mm -hmm. basically here you see a dose wise progression of, or lack of progression actually. Uh, if you don't take any EPAs, and these patients are all on standard of care, so statin, aspirin, beta blocker, uh, you don't add any omega-3s and you see their average, again, small numbers, but about 20% uh, plaque progression, so an increase in that atheroma volume. Yeah, have they measured that plaque progression? Surely not something like a CCTA, because cardiologists don't really recommend those. Well, the cardiologists that were involved in this study did. Hmm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, not really seeing that in practice yet, yeah. but uh, commonplace among uh, publishers and I guess academic centers. Yeah. And our patient population for the right candidates. And next you have the low EPA dose. So this one, I believe was in the realm of something around one gram, uh, maybe two grams of EPA with no DHA. Mm -hmm. um, and it had a slight reduction, right? 15.7% increase in atheroma volume. And then the EPA high had the smallest increase in progression, 5.6%. Mm -hmm. What I think is the most interesting is this chart right here below this. So they lumped both high EPA and DHA and high mm -hmm. EPA alone, which is only 1800 milligrams here in, into the same group. Yep. Those on the combo, zero of them had plaque progression. Hmm. Five of the patients had plaque progression on the high EPA alone. So that's it's really interesting to me, and it's not statistically significant because of the small numbers, mm -hmm. but if you have 20 patients on this high-dose EPA-DHA combo and none of them had plaque progression, that seems to bode pretty well that, and the conclusion from the paper was this, that the DHA is definitely not interfering or minimizing that benefit of the EPA. There's other benefits of EPA that the DHA may attenuate, yeah. but the plaque progression doesn't seem to be one. Yeah, we've talked about other benefits of DHA in the past, I think in our All Things Fats episodes, post-TBI, um, football players, military, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, but this is relatively compelling that it is at least non-inferior. Yeah, and if you're looking at just someone like hedging saying, hey, I, you know, I've got a 10% stenosis, I had a CCTA, I know I've got some plaque there. I want to kind of, you know, have all different vectors going to prevent that from going to 20, 30, 40% plaque. Then a combo product could be a reasonable addition. You're not going to be missing out on anything by not taking EPA only. Um, you're not going to have the increased bleeding risk, really. Really, you're just missing or attenuating that effect on the platelets. So if you're looking at like someone with a unstable angina, mm -hmm. then probably adding the DHA to that is not going to be the best risk-reward ratio for them in that case. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I guess another silver lining here is, although insurance won't cover it until you've had a cardiac event um, or a stent, uh, you can still get it for a cheap cash price. Yeah, or if you have a CCTA, you prove to them that, hey, I have plaque in my arteries, I'm a CADRADS2, mm -hmm. I should have a repeat CCTA by the guidelines at this interval, mm -hmm. then they will cover it, which is interesting. I mean, it's a good summary of kind of how our health system works. You prove you're sick so that you can get coverage. Yeah, prove you're sick out of pocket 
and then you'll get your meds covered, maybe. That's a, I still think it's a good investment. Yeah, it is. Especially if you get your PCSK9 covered if you need it. Yep. And then this paper, I'm going to go ahead and click into this one. So this experiment could be triggering for some people. Um, you know, it, it used animals and dogs, which people do care about more than mice in studies. I thought you were going to say more than humans. <laughs> some people care about <laughs> dogs more than humans also. Um, is that speciesist? Let's see. But basically, uh, the title of this paper is DHA, but not EPA supplementation reduces vulnerability to atrial fibrillation. And I think this is a good study because it's not in mice. Mm -hmm. Dogs are more similar to humans. They live in the same environment. Um, depending on what you feed your dog, they may have a more similar diet to you. Mm -hmm. um, and they basically what they did was they implanted pacers to push up these dogs' heart rate to 220 beats per minute for two weeks. And then one group got a gram of DHA, the other group got a gram of EPA, and the other group got a gram of olive oil. And it basically the summary was EPA seemed to increase the risk. Again, olive oil is not a perfect control because it may have some benefit by itself. Yeah. Um, but DHA was definitely superior. So I am in part basing my thinking about eat like omega-3 supplementation in humans from some like intervention randomized control trials in dogs. Yeah. What, what, what category does that put me in? Does that put me in evidence-based? The Huberman categories of... Show uh, me the data, not in rats, but in dogs? Yeah. Um, that being said, it's not that you're taking away the clinical endpoint or the outcome in dogs. You're taking away the, the scientific concept of the protective effect of DHA, which does appear to be at least somewhat collaborated in human study. Yeah, and the DHA also reduced atrial fibrosis uh, compared to the uh, no unsaturated fatty, unsaturated fatty acid group, whereas EPA did not. Mm. So interesting paper, again, uh, making a dog redline at 220 beats per minute for two weeks. Not something I would want to be a part of, like as far as being the one conducting that study, but I am glad that it was done because yep. it gives us a good piece of data. Um, and then there's a lot of other you know, experiments going on with dogs. Matt Caberline's uh, dog aging project, I think, is going to give us some interesting insights. Already has a bit. Yeah. One of the interesting side effects there of rapamycin in dogs is increased activity. So if you have a lazy dog, they might just be rapamycin deficient. Yeah, I do have lazy dogs. And even when they're on rapamycin, they are still lazy. So non-responders. Um, doesn't work for wolfhounds, at least. <laughs> <laughs> or at least not that I can perceive. Yeah, so you mentioned the DHA trial uh, looking at reducing, I think it was neurofilament light chain after a head injury. Yep. That was a DHA only supplement. And basically what I'm doing here is building my own case about a potential pivot in myself from a 50-50 split to something that's a little bit more DHA heavy as mm -hmm. far as my own supplementation. I think uh, Thomas DeLauer has been talking about a higher DHA for quite some time. Yep. I don't know if it's based off of some of this evidence or something else he's read, but it looks like a really reasonable trend to sort of steer the direction in. Yeah, I know Thomas occasionally likes cod liver oil, uh, krill oil sometimes. Um, I know there's lots of benefits to including astaxanthin content in your omegas, which is naturally occurring in things like krill. It's just the xanthophyll, it's a pigment. Um, and as we'll mention later, it can actually interfere with the assays used to test for oxidation. Um, I think people, there's a good podcast, a good clip 
Derek with More Plates, More Dates is talking with Thomas DeLauer about oxidation of fish oils and whatnot, which we'll get into later too. But basically, there's a lot of mixed evidence. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess this is also just another excuse to where uh, we can take the pregnancy omegas because usually high DHA, you think that's your prenatal, prenatal. omega. Yeah, absolutely. So I compiled a list of studies here thinking to myself, you know, what benefits am I likely to lose if I reduce the DH or reduce the EPA down to something like 500 milligrams? So a level that I don't feel is going to significantly increase the risk of AFib. And that, again, I said feel, not the data show. That's that's my feelings. I don't really have a great data set to point to there. Um, now, if someone is depressed or if someone has, um, for example, a lot of inflammation and they're in a hypercoagulable state, the EPA starts to make more sense, yep. risk benefit. But as far as some of these other things like uh, blood viscosity, um, the rigidity of your red blood cells and even blood pressure. Mm -hmm. um, that was significantly reduced after five weeks of omega-3s. And this was with a slightly higher DHA to EPA content. So 1440 milligrams versus 1080 of the EPA. So you're not really missing out on that much blood viscosity. Um, our next one here is kind of summarized. What's that? An increase in LDL? How yeah. does that work? Uh, that's good. That raises your testosterone, doesn't it? Doesn't it? The high, it's lean mass hyperresponder. It must be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two to three percent increase in LDL, and they actually did stratify by ApoE uh, allele uh, genotype and ApoE four. I don't know. Was that uh, a homozygote or a heterozygote? I believe they were just carriers. Carriers. It's pretty rare to find a homozygote a in double. the population. Um, they're hyperresponders to triglyceride lowering. Twenty three percent in ApoE4 males. Yeah, and I think Rhonda Patrick recently has talked about some interesting mechanisms or potential mechanisms with DHA, the blood-brain barrier, and especially ApoE4. They seem to, mm -hmm. like on the one side, have an increased risk, but on the other side, potentially be more amenable to like getting benefits from various interventions. Yep. Um, so they had this little increase in LDL. I mean, that's going to be what, four to six points in reality, depending yeah. on your baseline LDL. Um, and then a tiny increase in HDL. Yeah. So it's probably not clinically maybe significant. Maybe one point. And, and we don't yeah. really bet on HDL being the like protector of the coronaries in most cases. Here's a random thought. Perhaps the most beneficial SNP or nutrigenomic allele is ApoE4. Because in general, for those that haven't heard our podcast on nutrigenomics or whatnot, the science is not there. Look at the work of Dr. Michael Snyder, a PhD at Stanford. Um, you know, the clinical significance of nutrigenomics, not pharmacogenomics, Ooh. but nutrigenomics is terrible. Is but that it's, the one? This is technically uh, nutrigenomics. Yeah. Is that the one that came out recently where they looked at everyone's genes, put them on like low carb, low fat, like this is the diet according to your genes yep. and saw no differences at the end of the study? Yeah. So I saw that recently and I thought, well, that kind of confirms what I thought that these companies saying, oh, you should eat more fat or less fat based on these SNPs. There's just so many SNPs in the clinical, like each one maybe has an input of you know, 1%. It really doesn't move the odds a lot. Yeah. Um, but it's great for the margin of functional medicine. If we re released our nutrigenomic 
test and it was just an ApoE4. <laughs> oh, that would be great. ApoE genotype, then that would actually be significantly better than any product on the market. We'll release that at the same time as our proprietary blend of anti-aging supplement. <laughs> yeah. uh, be on the lookout in the future for that. Uh, we'll sell it for uh, very low cost on our website. There's <laughs> uh, another one, supplement lowering triglycerides. Increasing HDL 10% in this case, but it was combined with exercise. Um, also improved uh, endothelium-dependent arterial vasodilation. Yep. And that was in addition or a degree above what was seen with just exercise alone. This was almost five times as much DHA as EPA. A five to one ratio. Yeah, 360 and 1560. Yeah, so I think the takeaway from this paper was in individuals who are overweight, metabolically unhealthy, then some omega-3s could be a reasonable addition to their training program. To exercise. Additional benefits there with exercise, of course, being the foundation. Yeah, exercise is going to be a lot stronger than the omegas for... That for clinical sure. endpoint of increasing HDL that much. Here's yeah. a cod liver oil study. And yep. Cod liver oil has a naturally higher DHA to EPA ratio, mm -hmm. uh, which I believe most fish products do. And in yep. your own red blood cell membranes, there's significantly more DHA than EPA. So just, you know, intuitively, it makes sense that we should be taking in a little bit more DHA than EPA, unless it's for a specific yep. reason. Because it's a more natural state. That's just the natural state of humans, as most know. Paleolithic and pre-Paleolithic men consumed exclusively the liver of codfish. Yeah, it's the liver. it's the cod liver, the original liver kings and queens. Yeah, um, yep, definitely no fiber or fruits or vegetables or anything like that. The, the next they specifically only went to the pharmacy and got these prehistoric supplements that were at at least a two to one ratio DP, mm -hmm. DHA to EPA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, here's another study they talked about. We've talked about uh, blood viscosity, and that's kind of related to total vascular resistance. But this one studied arterial compliance, as, as people know, uh, as age increases, compliance or the uh, elasticity it can decrease quite a bit. That's why you have a widened pulse pressure. So this also reduced the pulse pressure. So oh. I guess a takeaway for this could be, and this was a pretty crazy omega ratio. Was it like a do. 15 to one or it's essentially that? pure DHA? Um, yeah, three grams of DHA roughly in 164 megs of EPA. So if you're 70 or 80 years old and you have a much, or even 60 and you have a widened pulse pressure, you're losing elasticity. You're worried about nitric oxide supplementation before that fancy nitric proprietary blend or before the plasmologens or before uh, even NMN um, or before your spermidine. It's going to be a much better like yep. return on investment as far as the cost threshold to optimize DHA before these, you just call them fancier or shinier things because yep. they're getting more press right now, more marketing. Yep. Just need to have some sort of uh, fancy marketing name for it. Vasculogen or something. Yeah. Something trademarked. Or Fif with yeah. 50 to 1 ratio of DHA to EPA. <laughs> Um, and then this one, I put this in here because I think you would find it particularly interesting. Uh, five weeks of basically DHA only. Again, it's like a five to one ratio yep. here. Um, elite Australian rules footballers. So this is like, I tried to figure out what this game was. It does use an actual football shaped ball, but it looks like a cross between American football and rugby. Yes. There's limited or no protective gear and it's played in an oval shaped stadium. That's about as far as I got. 
Reminds me of a game I played as a kid called Texas Rugby, except we used a basketball goal. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Best played in the snow with a lot of coats on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds like protective gear. Uh, Maybe so. But the interesting part here was we know that DHA tends to lower heart rate and lower blood pressure. Mm -hmm. They were able to do the same exercise at, this was basically... Um, not high intensity, not max effort, but sub-maximal exercise, cardio. Mm-hmm. And they performed the same work at seven beats per minute lower. So the That's hypothesis right. going in was this is a performance enhancer. Maybe they'll be able to perform like more watts per minute that they're in or whatever. Mm. The performance wasn't improved, but it looks like efficiency was potentially improved, yeah. at least for your like middle end. Um, and I, I kind of think about this as a car analogy, right? Your, your Prius going 65 on the highway, mm. it's going to get really good mileage. But on the top end, if you're limiting your max heart rate, yep. you may not be able to keep up with that Ferrari that's flying by you in yes. the left lane because no one's blocking the left lane because no one should ever block the left lane. That's true. Um, it's poor for your health to block the left lane, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, this is an interesting takeaway. I do wonder how it would translate to something like um, the Echo bike that we both like. That's the Airdyne bike or Assault bike or whatever you call it. That is really known for spiking your heart rate mm-hmm. quite high, quite quickly. Um, and yeah, it's one of the exercises along with incline bench that we both like doing pretty yeah. frequently. Incline bench and Echo bike enthusiasts. Yeah. The only two exercises you need. That'd be a good clickbait. <laughs> that, that would be. Uh, that's for a future After Hours podcast probably. But anyway, it also made me think of uh, overseas soccer players and rugby players and whatnot. I know Derek has made a video on this. The high amount of albuterol use, lots of albuterol is used. Yeah, which also cardio. improves submaximal exercise performance. Yep. So if you don't do this, but if someone hypothetically stacked albuterol with DHA, maybe they're not getting that limit on their max heart rate, mm-hmm. but getting a bit of improved efficiency. The English Premier League Players are taking notes right now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then one for the other Dr. Gillette here, um, Dr. Grant Gillette. DHA helps with periodontal disease. This was a DHA-only study, uh, 2,000 milligrams per day, and they saw improvements in, I believe it was gum recession uh, in this study. So I I don't know if he's doing that in his practice, but I'll have to ask Hmm. him about that. Yeah, I will. That's an interesting thing. Uh, I assume that now that he can just tell people to take the supplement, they don't have to do any sort of dental hygiene or brush their teeth. Brush your teeth with omega-3s. <laughs> uh, and then another DHA-only study. Uh, this was kind of an interesting one if people want to dig a little bit deeper. They compared a 2.7 grams of DHA to 2.7 grams of EPA on a ton of different parameters. I, I just pulled this one because it was really interesting. DHA increases LDL production also increases LDL clearance and increases LDL size. So the weight-based measurement you see on that LDL, you may not actually have as many particles. You may have a lower number of particles because those LDL particles are going to be larger and also being cleared from the bloodstream faster. Now, it doesn't seem to move oxidized LDL around, which is kind of a controversial marker anyway. But I wouldn't be worried about, you know, again, a two, three, four percent increase in LDL from adding omega-3s because really you have really good tools either through diet or through pharmacology if people need Mm -hmm. those to pull down the LDL. 
What if you take a lot of oxidized fish oil? Does that mean you get oxidized LDL? That's a good question. What no. are you going to tell us about rancid and oxidized fish oil? Because yeah. I was really comfortable with the pharmaceutical omega-3 ethyl esters, really good quality control. I, I do and still will prescribe those for patients because they're probably the most cost-effective mm -hmm. form out there. Yep. Um, but I think I am going to lean more towards supplementing that with a bit of DHA. So how do I make sure the DHA that I'm recommending for patients is not going to actually harm their health? Yeah, I guess I'll answer the question first before giving a whole bunch of troll sarcastic <laughs> statements this time. Um, but yeah, as a good rule of thumb, you want it to be new, less time to oxidize. You also want it to be in a soft gel. You do not want it to be a liquid or apparently there's also chewable tablets and gum. And spray. And spray that have omegas in it. So, and soon toothpaste, now that somebody's gonna take our idea from the podcast. Um, but anyway, uh, you want it to be a soft gel, relatively new. If you look at the conflicting studies, there's a whole bunch of them. There was an article that uh, will include the source too, although it's behind a hardcore paywall. The multiple ways that we usually- Recommend um, people not Recommend people that, not get around paywalls illegal. or whatnot, or our deep dive prescription or whatnot. Not on there yet, um, but we'll include that. And it looked at 73 different products, and this is basically the takeaway that they came. If it's flavored, it's also more likely rancid. So unflavored, soft gel, that's what you want to look for. If you look at a study and it says supplements with astaxanthin are bad or cod liver oil is bad, as in it's oxidized, assuming oxidized means bad, which it doesn't necessarily mean bad. I have not seen a study on that yet. Please link it in the comments if you've seen one. Um, but yeah, with all these conflicting studies, the assay for one of the specific oxidized products that they test for in the total toxin burden, um, which there's a, a threshold that's set by an international society, which is kind of hard to say if, how accurate it is, but it's better than nothing. Um, one of them is very frequently off if um, they have any sort of pigment in it. So any xanthophil like astaxanthin is going to be a pigmented. It's going to throw off the products. assay, just like someone taking biotin will throw off their thyroid studies potentially. Yeah. Same concept. So, so a, a lot of other people ask about triglycerides versus ethyl esters. They're like, well, you can't prescribe them. But honestly, the only time I've heard people say you need triglyceride form is someone who's paid by a supplement company or a clinic who gets part of their paycheck from a supplement company. So ethyl esters are not terrible. Yes, there's good bioavailability of both ethyl esters and triglyceride form. Triglyceride form likely does get intracellular easier, but has a shorter active half-life, if you will, in the serum. So ethyl esters kind of like easy bleed, which might be decent if you're worried about these omegas getting into cardiac tissue. So for very high dose, it might be better. Um, whereas triglyceride form, um, yeah, probably not more stable maybe a little bit easier to get intracellular, possibly better in an older uh, patient population, but you can also stack both together. You can take one pill of prescribed omega-3 ethyl ester, you could take another pill of, you know, mostly DHA triglyceride form. Yeah, I think those are really reasonable. And I may have misspoke earlier. The omega-3 ethyl ester prescription may not be the cheapest. The cheapest may be Kirkland omega-3s, which I actually, this was the first time I checked mm. an omega-3 index was I was eating a lot of mackerel and I was also supplementing with, I think it was six or eight capsules of the Kirkland omega-3s. Because I remember they only had 300 milligrams of omega-3 
per gram capsule. Ooh. So I didn't want to continue doing that, but I was like, yeah. well, I got these cheap. I want to use them up. So I did. And then I think it was four months in, something like that. Uh, checked my omega-3 index and it was north of 8%. So I was like, well, I think that these do have like the omega-3 in content. They purport to. Yeah. But at that point, I did pivot to an ethyl ester product because then I could take two capsules yeah. instead of six or eight. Less pill fatigue, uh, less room in the fridge, assuming you keep it in the fridge. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. Maybe less burps if you're an individual that gets that. So there's, there's a lot of positives to taking a more highly concentrated product. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of people just get their ethyl esters from Mark Cuban's pharmacy, cost plus drugs. Um, there's good RX coupons that have great deals for them as well. Mm -hmm. But it's probably something that you don't want to stockpile of five years and then just uh, keep using it time over time over time. Yeah, definitely want those to be fresh or at least airing on that side. So the percent here was, this is like, I don't know if it specified between capsulated, but basically if it's unflavored, there's a 13% chance that it exceeded the guideline for oxidation. Mm -hmm. um, I assume that number would be lower, maybe south of 10% if you're looking at an encapsulated form, like yep. a gel cap. So to me, that's pretty good. So that means that nine out of 10 products I pick up off the shelf, they're in a gel cap. They're probably not gonna have a substantial amount of like oxidation or they're not gonna be rancid. Yep. Um, however, almost 70% of the flavored products, I know for a short period of time, uh, one of my children, Archer, tends to get a lot of concussions. I had him on a DHA protocol. There was a primarily DHA supplement. And I'm glad that he used it pretty quick because it probably did go rancid. Uh, relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, for other info on this topic, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, of course, is uh, essentially known for this omega topic. Yeah. Omega-3s, ratio of omega-3s to omega-6s, omega-3s, 6s, 9s, 12s. In the future, we might talk about special branded proprietary omegas, which occur in nature, but not at high doses, but are amazing for you. Um, but we really appreciate um, any comments or insight into this. Perhaps we'll do a Q&A if we get enough interaction like we did on the Dutastride episode. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully we imparted some valuable info and, you know, kind of um, some reassurance in the context of what sounds like a very scary warning, um, which for people that are high risk patients. So if you have known coronary artery disease, diabetes, yep. you know, 80% of these patients have high blood pressure in these trials, then those are people where that could be kind of a tipping point. We really don't know. You can't say conclusively in the healthy general population whether that is going to be a tipping point or not because no one is going to do that study and give four yeah. grams of omega-3s to healthy people because there's not yeah. going to be much of an effect to measure. But in general, I think it's a low-risk intervention still. Personally, I just like to err on the side of caution. So I'll end up skewing a bit more towards the DHA. Yep. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode despite us not telling you to consume mega doses or stop completely. Um, as always, that's just our balanced approach to health. I'm waiting for the comment, but what ratio should I take? <laughs> yeah. Someone, I, will, someone will put it there. One thing we would say is we mentioned this in previous podcasts as well, and this one too, is we do like to check omega RBCs. Mm -hmm. So um, omega quant, yeah. I think it's just omegaquant.com. You can go there, you can get it from Amazon. You don't need a doctor's prescription to get that. Um, or if your doctor orders uh, Vibrant Labs, you can yep. add an omega-3 index onto that. Vibrant Labs is also RBC. Um, um, LabCorp is not. Yeah, Omega Check is what LabCorp utilizes. It's not quite as consistent, 
Um, but there is a, I believe there's some conversions you can do to see what roughly your omega-3 index would be. But our recommendation is just to go ahead and get the better test in our opinion, which is mm-hmm. looking at the red blood cells. Yeah, I guess we could plug our own labs here too. I think it's gillettehealth.com slash labs. You can get a complete intracellular micronutrient panel, every nutrient in the serum and intracellularly. It's kind of expensive, but to my knowledge, it's from Vibrant and it's the only product like that on the market. It includes omegas, includes CoQ10 intracellular, includes intracellular glutathione, some really unique things. So if you want to support the podcast, that always helps. And I guess that wraps it up for today. Yeah, I think that's a wrap. As always, thank you for your time. Thank you for listening and may God bless you with health and happiness. 